From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Doug Koch adjusts toric IOL calculations for posterior corneal astigmatism and Susan McDonald on preparing for infrequent complications during cataract surgery. The more width rule you have on the front, the mother posterior cornea compensates for it, which means when you're doing toric IOLs, you have to back off even more in the higher amounts of astigmatism. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the annual meeting of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery in Boston. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present a number of these interviews in their entirety over several podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Doug Koch, who adjusts toric IOL calculations for posterior corneal astigmatism, and Susan McDonald on preparing for infrequent complications during cataract surgery. All of these interviews were fantastically interesting to me, and I learned a lot in these conversations. I hope that you enjoy them as much as I did. I'm here with Doug Koch. Doug, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. I'm always happy to be speaking with you. Now, you know, when, when, when I'm planning for cataract surgery, I, I obviously, you know, I look at the eye, I do the biometry, which includes measurements of the anterior corneal surface. I do topography routinely in all of my, my pre-op cataracts. But, you know, I understand that there's a part of the cornea that I'm not measuring, which is the back surface. Should I care about that? Well, the uh, the posterior cornea is one of these most amazing structures that sort of eluded our interest and attention and, and our understanding until recently. And what's remarkable is it helps us and hurts us. If you have a patient with one diopter with, with the rule of stigmatism, you do a spherical IOL, that patient's going to do great. You have a patient who has a half diopter against the rule of stigmatism, and you do a spherical IOL, that patient could end up with one diopter against the rule of stigmatism in the refraction. So that's a long answer <laughs> to your question, which is absolutely, the posterior cornea really does matter, and it really alters how we need to think about our management of our patients' astigmatism. And Doug, realizing that individual patients are, are different, can, can be different, still there, there are some sort of general guidelines you've developed with regard to the astigmatism that's induced by the posterior cornea. Can I get you to, to just spell that out for me? Yeah. Uh, the primary optical principle is that the if the posterior cornea is a minus lens, so it tends to be steep on the back, and because it's a minus lens, that means its refractive power is horizontal, so it creates against the rule astigmatism. Take a patient who has with the rule on the front, 
steep vertically, the more they have on the front, the more they have on the back. So there's actually more compensation. And we've seen posterior corneal astigmatism as high as 0.9 diopters in patients whose corneas are three or four diopters steep in the front, vertically. But if they have against the rule of astigmatism, it tends to be about 0.3 on the back, again, against the rule. So there is a difference, and it doesn't really matter how much against the rule you have, but the more with the rule you have on the front, the mother posterior cornea compensates for it, which means when you're doing toric eye wells, you have to back off even more in the higher amounts of astigmatism. So I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an optics geek. I might... To be fair, my geekiness is not limited to optics, but you know, uh, I'm an I'm an optics geek. So I, I just want to reiterate what what you what you just said, because it's it's not it's not obvious. Which is is that if a cornea is steep vertically, anteriorly the cornea is going to be acting as a plus lens that is steep vertically because we're, we're, we're moving from an index that's low, which is to say air to an index that's high, which is corneostroma. The exact same curvature on the back surface of the cornea is going to give you the opposite optical power. Exactly right. Yeah. So as, as a general rule then, and of course it, I, I, I direct our, our viewers to review the, the specific recommendations, but with with the rule corneas, I'm going to be implanting torque lenses. Let's say that I'm treating with a with a torque lens, that would be lower in their torque power than if I just used the anterior corneal curvature to determine what the toricity of the IOL should be. Yeah, I mean a, a very quick rule of thumb is if they have astigmatism on the front, back off a half diopter in your toricity. If they have it on the, I mean if they're against the rule on the front, then you increase it by half doctor, but it's a little bit more complex than that, particularly in patients who have more with the rule, where you, I think you need to back off even more. This is what, wonderful stuff, I mean, that, 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 that you've brought to the fore um, an important part of the eye that, that, that's going to have outcomes that are very practical in uh, our, our own practice, and you know, I, I want to thank you for it, and I especially want to thank you for being generous with your time with us today. But wait, wait, there's more. Oh, please. I sound like one of those internet salespeople. And that is that the cornea changes over time. And so one of the sort of controversial recommendations that I've made is we need to leave all of our patients a little bit with the rule. Don't try to get them perfect. Give them a little bit of with the rule so that as they fade with time, their astigmatism will actually still maintain a very low level. So that's sort of another component to this whole package of how we try to get the best results for our patients. How does that play into, into patients' age? I don't take into account patients' age unless we know they have one or two years to live because patients want to see now. So I, I, I'm not going to take a 25-year-old and leave him or her plus one with the rule because they're going to fade over time. I, I try to leave everybody the same with the understanding that in probably 10, 15 years, they may need an astigmatic touch-up if they're seeking that spectacle-free vision. Yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Doug, thank you for being even, even more generous uh, with your time with us today. Thanks. I'm here with Susan McDonald. Susan, there are cataract cases that are challenging, that, that, that we know walking in are going to be challenging, and then there are cases that, that wind up being, being challenging. And I think part of the, the thing that makes unusual cases difficult is that we just don't have much practice doing them. Now, you have an interesting 
perspective on how we can get ourselves up to speed to, to deal with really hard things like, like dislocated lenses. Can, can I get you to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think you know every anterior segment surgeon, whether you're glaucoma trained, refractive, or corneal trained, we all need to be ready for these difficult cases, this dislocated lenses. The problem is, is they're not routine and there's a lot of maneuvers that we will be doing for the first time when we're repairing them. So what I suggest to anyone that's wanting to develop a practice of repairing dis dislocated lenses is that they actually take the time to really think about this entire case as a little subset of a specialty that you're going to have to obtain some training in. And that means to um, make sure you're up to um, speed on the literature, attending some didactic courses, and also some wet labs. And those wet labs don't have to be, they can be at um, meetings such as this wonderful meeting here, but you can also create your own small wet lab in your own operating room. And that means just grabbing some of these um, unusual needles that we're using and the suture material we're using and practicing that docking maneuver because what you want to do is develop that muscle memory of these little um, maneuvers so that when you go into the operating room and are challenged with these cases that you're not just practicing it for the first time on the patient. I'm, I'm glad that, that, you, that you brought up docking because I, I think docking is um, that there's, there's the, the largest gap between the way that people make it look on on video and and what it what it's like to it's technically yeah. very very yeah. difficult how do i practice docking well i will say this one of the reasons my videos look so good is I highly edit them because it's a very difficult maneuver. So I think one of the things that you can practice is actually just getting a 27 or a 26 gauge needle, then getting the two, uh, either a long straight needle with the proline, the tenoproline, or the curved suture, and just get into the operating room and create yourself an environment where you're just practicing passing that. Now that sounds a little silly and artificial, but it's actually we store that muscle memory in our cerebellum and what we want to do is have the docking be seamless so that when you get into the operating room and you're making all these maneuvers with this dislocated lens you're not even thinking about this is a difficult procedure because it's no longer difficult for you. Now, Susan, you, you, you and I share, share a lot of things in uh, common. We've both spent a lot of time in Boston. We both, we both operate on the same part, part of the eye. We both teach residents. Now, yes. it's one thing to learn how to do things your, yourself. Yes. It, it's another thing to, to try to teach, not, not only to teach a resident, but often to teach a resident who created the complication in the, in the, in the first place. How, how do you do this? I think this is a really good question, and I think this is a big part of teaching. Is number one, I videotape every case that and every case that a resident's doing with me. I think we can coach in the operating room, but it's limited for teaching because the resident really is what we're trying to do is keep them focused. If by chance I have to take over because there's a major complication, I do a lot of my thinking out loud and I'll just talk about what I'm doing. But I think what's critical is a wrap up. If there's a complication or a complexity to a case, I think sitting down and watching that video with the resident and just talking about this is what I was thinking. 
and this is why I did this. And, and stopping the video when something's happening and saying, what are the three things you're thinking about now? And just helping them build that problem solving skill. I mean, it's not just the ability to do the surgery, it's the ability to think clearly under yeah, pressure. Sure. Sure, and not not only I I find I'm sure that you do too. That 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 not only do we have to talk about the things that went wrong, but we we have to highlight the things that the resident did right because often the resident did it right by by accident, and and you want to make sure that the second time that that they do it by you know purposely. Exactly, exactly, and I. I helped. I think one of the things that you know as an educator is we have to build their confidence. And absolutely. And a lot of where they get the confidence is you believing in yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. So That's I think true. that positive, like when my when my residents are operating, I'm always saying something positive about what, what's happening. And then, you know, like little things about a little technique. After they learn the capsulorexis, I have my residents each practice the little technique on every capsulorexis. Right at the end, they fold it back over Just and they pull it. make a little scallop. Yeah. Make a little scallop. And you know why? Is that when they need that little technique, when, when you start to panic, your higher order thinking drops and all you do is panic. And so what we want to teach them is you have a skill that can get you out of trouble and you, all you have to do is use it. That's a great point, and I don't, I have not till this conversation uh, routinely done that. But I think that yeah, I think it's that's smart. A, I think I'm going to do it's that. A, yeah. and, it, and it's surprising how surprised they are when it works, and how confident they are walking out of that OR, not having to turn over the capsulorexis to their attendant. Yeah, oh, that's a great point, Susan. Thank you very much for oh, for sharing this and for being so generous with your time with us today. Thank you so much. Doug Koch is the Allen Mossbacker and Law Chair of Ophthalmology and Professor of Ophthalmology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Susan McDonald comes to us from Concord, Massachusetts. Ask questions of Dr. Koch, Dr. McDonald, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.